Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Occupation. When Gideon Palmer arrived at work for his first day, it was still dark outside. His shift was from 5 a.m. to 2 p.m., but he got there at just after 4 in the morning. He wasn't going to risk being late. He was already on edge, already worried about being found out. He'd only met his boss one time when he'd come out to the farm for an interview. To Gideon's surprise, the tan, stocky man had asked him for a resume. Gideon didn't think resumes were required for farm work. But he liked the farm, nestled in the Tuella Valley, and he liked the prospect of working there. So, that afternoon, he went to the library in town and used one of the computers there to write himself a resume. He had, of course, lied on his resume, saying he'd been working for the last three years on a farm in New Hampshire. The truth was, he hadn't worked in New Hampshire or anywhere else in the last three years. He'd been down in Draper, at the Utah State Prison, a detail he very deliberately left off his resume. But, he wondered, what the hell was he supposed to do? You don't just go into a job interview and start talking about armed robbery convictions. If his employer found out, Gideon would try to explain himself. But until then, he was just another day laborer. Who knows, he thought. Maybe they won't even care. How high could their standards be for hiring farm workers? As he sat in his old pickup truck, waiting for his shift to start, Gideon surveyed the wheat field that sprawled out before him. It was there that he would spend the hours of his shift. It was vast and the crop was only knee-high at that point in the season, so he could see clear across the field to where the property ended. On the distant edge of the field, something caught Gideon's eye. He could see a single unmoving shape against the mountainous backdrop of the horizon. It looked to be roughly the size of a man, but something told him it wasn't a man. It was pointy and narrow, extending up out of the ground like a pillar, Gideon's curiosity was piqued by the shape, and since he still had nearly an hour until his shift started, he decided to go check it out. Even if the shape at the far end of the field turned out to be nothing, he still liked the idea of walking over to investigate. A nice walk in the cold morning air would get his blood flowing, get him ready for a hard day's work. By the time he got a few hundred paces from the shape, 
he realized that it wasn't man-sized, but taller, roughly eight feet or so. And it was clearly stationary. It hadn't moved so much as an inch as he'd slowly approached it. It was hard to see in the pre-dawn darkness, but as he got closer, he could finally make out that it was a large stone, standing upright, about a foot and a half wide and maybe eight or nine feet tall. It was shaped like a pillar, but the top broke off at a jagged angle, leaving a pair of sharp-looking points at its apex. It didn't look man-made. It hadn't been carved or quarried, at least not that he could tell. But it didn't exactly look like a natural formation, either. As it towered over the field, the rock looked like something of an enigma to Gideon. Heeding a strange, unspoken impulse, he lifted his hand and pressed his palm against the stone's smooth surface. It was cold and hard and rough. All the things Gideon had come to expect from the world. And as he stood there, basking in its commanding presence, feeling its smooth chill against his skin, the young farm worker, not two weeks out of prison, felt something. It was intangible, but it was there. A kind of energy. A sensation. It made him feel something that he hadn't felt in a very long time. It made him feel powerful. It made him feel in control. As he stood there before the rock, Gideon felt a few inches taller. For the first time in the last few years, things seemed possible. It was like a promise that he heard in the wind. And it told him that the whole world could be his again. Selina de Leon did not miss her father. She noticed his absence, yes, but she didn't wonder about him. She didn't wish he would come back and explain himself. She didn't rely on him for anything, and she was proud for that. At 16 years old, she was as close to being an independent adult as she could be. She ran track, got good grades, stayed out of trouble, she had a driver's license and a banged-up Volkswagen Passat that she bought with money she earned from working at a bakery in Tuella. She told her mother that she was planning on going to college, but in the back of her mind, she was thinking about becoming a pilot. She often wondered what life would be like from up there, high above the world. Selena didn't remember much about her father. In her memory, he was always lying slack on the couch, a beer between his legs, and his dark, curly hair reaching all the way down to his sunglasses, which he, for some reason, often wore inside the house. Whenever he noticed her enter the room, he would turn down the volume on the TV and ask her about her day in some general, uninterested way. She would tell him excitedly, jumping around and using hand gestures that had no basis in what she was saying. It made Selina tense up to think about how naive she had been as a child, always vying for her father's attention, for his approval, always certain that if she just said the right thing, he'd be proud of her. He'd show some kind of interest. He'd participate in her life like her friends' dads did. But the validation never came. 
She just told him about her day, and he'd nod, and then he'd return his attention to the TV and turn the volume back up. At least, that's what he did most of the time. Sometimes, Selena's father was different. Not quite himself. His long, dark hair would grow heavy with sweat, and on the occasion that he took off his sunglasses, his eyes would be frantic and wide, darting around the room. It was like a deep concern had taken over him, like he was paranoid about something, but he would never say exactly what. All he would tell Selena was that she always must watch the doors. He went into seemingly manic states where he'd become obsessed with doors. Instead of turning the volume back up on the TV, he would wave her over, and in a low whisper, he would tell her about the doors. Sometimes a door opens to another room, he would say. Sometimes a door opens to another world. You have to be careful and pay attention. Never step through a door without having your wits about you. And never let the door to the room you're in out of your sight. If you're not paying attention, anything could come walking through that door. Anything could be right on the other side. Selena hardly ever knew what to make of these tangents. Even at four years old, she knew that her father sounded insane ranting about doors leading to other places. And what was she even to do with the information? It wasn't as though he offered any kind of solution. Just the ominous warning to pay attention to the doors. As if some kind of monster, some kind of immaculate evil, was always waiting just on the other side of the door. In the years that followed, Selena came to think of her father's preoccupation with doors as ironic. Because as it turned out, he himself would one day walk through a door and never return. 3. Gideon knew that the stone was doing something to him. He just didn't know exactly what to call it. He would be at work in the field, and all of a sudden he would get a feeling, almost like someone had just called out to him. He would stand and turn and face the stone, and the feeling would come over him. It was similar to the feeling he would get before a robbery, when he was sitting in his truck about to pull the mask down over his face, about to reach out with a steady, unwavering hand and point a loaded Beretta at a terrified cashier or bank teller. It was the moment in which he felt most alive, when he was about to get paid or get nicked, and his heart was beating so loud in his ears that he could barely hear himself breathe. That was how the stone made him feel. He continued to arrive at work early every day, just so he could sit in his truck and observe the stone from the other side of the field. Even at a distance, the giant pillar of rock electrified him. When his shift began, he would work, often with savage energy. Having seen Gideon's work ethic, his boss, a stumpy man named Miller, appeared to take a liking to him. After his first week, Miller began teaching Gideon how to drive the combine. As far as Gideon could tell, his boss didn't suspect anything about his criminal past. He never gave any indication that he had looked into it, and Gideon never gave him any reason to. 
After three weeks, Miller even entrusted Gideon with the keys to the barn and the tool shed, both of which housed valuable farming equipment and tools. On his lunch break, Gideon often sat at the foot of the rock, eating in silence. He imagined Miller and the other farm workers thought him odd for taking up the ritual. But he didn't much care. You could say that eating at the base of the stone was his way of showing gratitude to the rock. In a roundabout way, he believed the massive stone had called him there. It had helped him get the job, and it had given him the vitality to work hard and earn the favor of his boss. So much of his good fortune, it seemed, had come to him by way of the stone. More so, though, was the way it made him feel. When he finished his meals, he would stand and press a single palm against the weathered surface of the monolith. The stone's strange energy would surge through him. It felt euphoric, but also perverse in a way. He could only take so much of it, when it became too much, he would yank his hand back and step away, breathing deep as the stone's energy moved in him. He didn't have any doubts about the power of the stone. He didn't know what it was or why it made him feel the way it did, but he knew that it was special. That much he was certain of. But even if he had been skeptical, if he had doubted the stone's power, what he saw one morning in early April would have convinced him. It was a quarter past four in the morning, and he was sitting in his truck, listening to the monotonous drone of talk radio and gazing out across the field. The stone was cloaked in darkness, but the shine of the setting moon was enough to illuminate its shape. He didn't just rely on sight to sense the stone, though. He could feel its presence, too. And as he sat there, in the early morning darkness... He could feel it suddenly grow stronger. He watched from across the field as the stone began to emit a faint glow, its surface shining with an iridescent luster. Gideon stared at the stone, trying to determine if the glow he was seeing was a reflection or some kind of mirage. But the ambient light seemed to arise purely from the stone itself, and the light had an odd quality to it as well. It didn't shine or cast shadows like other sources of light. The shimmer seemed only to be confined to the rock itself, as if the illumination started from somewhere deep inside and radiated out. He was so taken by the glowing stone that it took him a moment to realize the rock had moved. It was floating now, several feet above the ground where it had stood. Gideon could see the muted light illuminating the ground beneath the stone. It levitated, perfectly in place, shining in the darkness like a beacon or a torch, calling out to Gideon, slowly making its way into his mind and rooting itself there. 4. By the time Selina was five years old, her father was gone. She had always thought her father strange and unpredictable, but she could have never imagined him disappearing. What was truly perplexing, though, was her mother's reaction. She suspected that her mother knew at least something about her father's disappearance, but she withheld whatever information that might have been. 
She would just shake her head when Selena asked where he'd gone. He did this, she would say. He did this. It didn't take long for the young girl to get used to the fact that his absence would probably remain a mystery, at least to her. Selena was a smart girl, though, and she picked up on more than her mother knew. The girl's most effective method of gathering information was eavesdropping on her mom's phone conversations. Her mother had a tendency to call her sister, Selena's aunt, and vent to her. Selena knew that these conversations could be especially revealing when her mother was drinking her special grown-up drinks. One day, about two months after her father had gone missing, Selena was in her room pretending to be asleep when she heard her mother pick up the phone in her bedroom down the hall. In the conversation that ensued, just as in several other conversations that Selena had overheard, her mother lamented her father's disappearance. Though, unlike Selena, her mother didn't seem saddened or perplexed by his disappearance. She just carried on, complaining about him, about all the problems he had left behind. It was as though her mother regretted ever meeting him. While this was all pertinent information to Selena, none of it was new to her. She knew that her mother had lost respect for her father, that she was angry at him. But then, as the young girl lay in her darkened bedroom, she heard her mother say something that she hadn't heard before. It was his job, her mother said. That's where it all started. That's where it all went wrong. His stupid job. Selena realized in that moment that she didn't even know what her father's job was. She knew that he went somewhere during the day, that he earned money, but she didn't know much beyond that. On a few occasions, when her mother seemed in a calm or understanding state of mind, Selena tried to broach the topic with her. But any time she asked her mother what her father had done for a living, she would get a harsh and uninformative response. What did he do? Her mother would scoff. What did he do? He did things no person was meant to do. Do you understand that, Selena? The young girl would half nod, even though she had no idea what a statement like that was supposed to mean. As the years went on, Selena took what little she had gleaned from her mother and built a vague understanding of who her father was. Much of it was built on speculation, but it wasn't as though she had anything else to go off of. She surmised that her father had been a criminal, perhaps a drug dealer, which would explain why her mother so disapproved of his occupation. It would also provide some semblance of an explanation for his bizarre fear of doors. If her father had been involved in some kind of criminal enterprise, he may have lived in the fear that police or a rival gang would come and kick his door down one day. And maybe all his talk of doors had just been his way of trying to prepare his daughter for such an event. As for his sudden, unexplained disappearance, perhaps he had gone to prison. Or maybe he had died in a shootout with police. There were all kinds of ways for a criminal to get wiped off the map. As time went on, Selena thought less and less about her father. Who he might have been and where he might have gone were things that she simply accepted as being lost to history. 
But even as a young woman, Selena knew that nothing is ever truly lost. None of the things we hide away stay hidden forever. 5. The first time the stone spoke to Gideon, he was certain he'd gone insane. It was a Wednesday. The sky was pale and gray, and work was slow at the farm. Gideon had just finished eating his lunch at the base of the towering rock. As he got to his feet to return to work, a peculiar voice drifted into his ear. It won't be long now, the voice said. Gideon's head turned on a swivel, trying to determine the source of the voice. He didn't understand how someone could have gotten to within speaking range without him noticing. The voice had sounded so near to him, but there wasn't another living soul within a few hundred yards. Convinced that someone was playing a practical joke on him, he slowly crept around the perimeter of the rock, certain he would find someone crouched behind it. But there was no one there. Then, to Gideon's astonishment, the words came again. It won't be long now. Gideon's knees trembled with concern and apprehension. He was surprised when he heard himself ask, Who are you? Who do you think? The voice responded. I'm the one that lives inside the stone. But how? Gideon asked, feeling as though his grasp on reality was growing more precarious with each passing second. I am like you, the voice said. An autonomous soul. An independent entity. Only instead of having a body, I'm trapped inside of a stone. But that's impossible, Gideon said. I mean, how does something like that even happen? There was a long silence, and then Gideon heard the voice say, Oh, I see. You doubt me. Of all people, Gideon, I thought you would understand my plight. Apparently, I was wrong. No, no, Gideon contended. I don't doubt you. He was moving closer to the stone now, speaking in hushed tones. I don't doubt you at all. I just... I don't understand. Please, enlighten me. The stone went silent again, seeming to consider the request. And then at last it began to speak. Gideon, have you ever heard of the Dugway Proving Ground? Gideon thought. Yeah, he said. It's the military base down the way. It's where they research anthrax and firebombing and all kinds of top secret shit. That's right the stone said. Dugway is indeed the military base down the way where they research all kinds of top-secret shit. And it was at Dugway Proving Ground, just over a decade ago, that I was summoned to your world. You see, the reckless researchers at Dugway were exploring the effects of exotic chemical reactions. But little did they know, they were also performing a kind of alchemy. They were taking part in a ritual older than recorded time. I... I don't understand, Gideon confided, still nearly speechless. For a moment, the stones seemed to scoff at him, and Gideon felt humiliated. But then the calming voice that emanated from within the rock began again. In the old world, your ancestors had rituals, Gideon. They took part in mystical processes, 
things that, by today's standards, would seem like magic. One such process consisted of summoning one of my kind to your world. See, your ancestors saw my people as kind of gods, Gideon. They performed alchemical rites, calling my kind to your world when they were in need of help. Think of the ancient concept of a genie that grants wishes. But, Gideon interrupted, still struggling to understand, what does that have to do with Dugway Proving Ground? And why are you inside of a rock? Oh, this, Gideon, this is no ordinary rock. This rock, as you call it, is really a doorway. When the ancient people were in need of help or guidance, and they summoned one of my kind, we would arrive at such a doorway. Because my kind reside in a different reality, we can only enter your world through a designated doorway, erected by the ancient people who mastered these methods. According to these traditions, once one of my kind is summoned, we will arrive at the doorway and remain inside, until such time that whoever summoned us relieves us of our confinement. So, Gideon started, still grappling with the concept. What you're saying is that the researchers at Dugway accidentally participated in an alchemical ceremony, and by doing so they summoned you, a kind of god, to this pillar of stone? Yes, yes, said the voice in the stone. Now you see. And you must also see that I need your help. It's like purgatory in here, Gideon. An eternal waiting room. You have to help me. You have to get me out of this rock, Gideon. 6. By the time she was 17, Selina had settled for the belief that her father was nothing more than a paranoid drug dealer. And she would have gone on believing it, had she not applied for a passport. As a student at Tuella Valley High School, Selina was a prominent member of the school's French club. After a successful fundraising campaign the previous summer, the senior members of the French club had raised enough to fund a trip to France. There, they would experience firsthand the people, the culture, and the history of the country they had spent three years studying and discussing. The only problem was, Selina needed a passport to go. It took some persistence and begging, but eventually her mother agreed. Midway through the passport application process, Selina caught a hitch. Because she was still technically a minor, Selina had to provide comprehensive details about her parents' lives and employment histories. Her mother was resistant at first, saying she had nothing and knew nothing about her missing husband's employment history. But eventually, when she realized that French Club was the most rewarding aspect of her daughter's life, that it was the one thing that made her feel like someday she might be a part of something bigger than that sleepy Utah town. She obliged. When Selena was handed the paperwork, she took it immediately to her room and shut the door. As she thumbed through brittle sheets of paper, she discovered that her father had in fact not been a drug dealer, that he hadn't worked for a criminal enterprise at all. 
He had been a specialty contractor at a top-secret military base called the Dugway Proving Ground. She had heard of Dugway. The base was 40 or so miles from Tuella. The kids at school spoke of Dugway with an air of conspiracy. It was like Utah's Area 51. Everything from biological warfare research to weapons testing to reverse engineering of UFOs had been rumored to occur at the base which meant that her father could have been involved in just about anything. Unfortunately, the paperwork Selena held in her hands failed to provide any more than the most basic details. Of the few dozen pages she had been given, 75% of the contents had been completely redacted. Still, she could see enough for the entire paradigm she'd constructed around her father's life to disintegrate. He hadn't been a shady thug. He'd been an official of some kind, someone who the military trusted to work on highly top-secret projects. Though he wasn't referred to as a ranking officer or a scientist or a doctor anywhere in the paperwork, he was addressed with respect and authority, and it was clear that whoever he had reported to saw his work as being a matter of great importance. Though one thing she did find especially odd was that the paperwork regarding his termination and subsequent disappearance was completely redacted. Not a word of it was legible through the thick black lines of impenetrable ink. Whatever had led to his discharge, it had been kept completely secret. The paperwork she'd been given was enough to satisfy the requirements of the passport office, but Selena's own curiosity was nowhere near satisfied. She hadn't cared to know the details of her father's life when she'd thought he was a useless dirtbag. But now that she knew he was involved in some kind of secret project at Dugway Proving Ground, she couldn't help but yearn for a deeper explanation. She went online to read what she could about the military installation. She learned that during World War II, the military had built replicas of German and Japanese houses on the base so they could practice firebombing them. Apparently, the base was the site of numerous chemical and biological weapons testing campaigns. And more recently, a general at Dugway had been reprimanded for shipping live samples of anthrax out across the world. As she read, Selena's confusion and uneasiness only deepened. So her father wasn't a drug dealer, but what was he? A mastermind of some inhumane weapon system? A faithful servant of the war machine? Selena took a deep breath. She didn't need this. She had her own life to worry about. And it wasn't her job to be accountable for whatever her father had or hadn't done. But even as she cycled these self-affirming statements through her head, Selena suspected that there would be more to this story. She had a lurking suspicion that her father's ghost wasn't done haunting her yet. 7. Gideon ran from the talking stone, and for the following few days he didn't go anywhere near it. But then, one day, he found himself loitering in the vicinity of the stone, craving the euphoric rush it used to give him. He moved towards it, taking one small step at a time, and then all at once it hit him. It felt like a shot of adrenaline spiked with a cocktail of pharmaceutical narcotics, but it was cleaner than any drug he had ever done. 
It was a feeling of ethereal gratification, of inconceivable oneness. It settled down into his bloodstream, and then he heard the voice whisper, Get me out, it said. Get me out, Gideon, and you will be repaid. He tried to ignore the command, tried to convince himself he was hearing things, that he was losing his mind. But he had never been crazy. He'd never seen things that weren't there. He'd never heard voices. At least, not until now. And you're still not crazy, the voice told him. Gideon pressed his palms against his ears, trying to silence the voice. But now it seemed to echo from somewhere within his head. Get me out, Gideon. Get me out. He could feel its luminous power coursing through him. If you free me from this stone, it told him, I can introduce you to an entirely different state of being. You'll see and experience things you never thought possible. How? Gideon finally said in a near whisper. How do I do it? How do I get you out? Bring me the daughter of the man that summoned me. The what? Gideon asked. You want me to kill someone? No, of course not, the stone told him. I need a vessel, a living specimen, someone to inhabit. Would you want to be trapped in here without a body, Gideon? Well, no, Gideon said, but so bring her to me. The researcher brought me into this world. He left me stranded without a body. It's only fair that I should have his daughter. I just, Gideon tried. So do you think it should be someone else's daughter that I take? An innocent that had no involvement one way or the other? No, Gideon said, of course not. Then bring her to me, Gideon. Get me out. As the stone spoke the last few words, Gideon felt another euphoric rush come over him. The influence the stone had on him was overbearing, and he could feel the last remaining parts of himself surrender to it. That night, under cover of darkness, Gideon pulled a black duffel bag out of his attic and brought it down to his truck. It contained the old tools of the trade, all but his Beretta, which he had already taken out to clean and load. He didn't have to ask the stone how to find the girl. It was already in his head, guiding him as he drove his rusty old truck towards her house. When he arrived... He shut off his truck and sat low in the darkened cab. He felt a vague awareness that what he was doing was wrong, but no part of his will felt free from the influence of the stone. The crime he was about to commit felt no more like his doing than the rising or setting of the sun. He was a man possessed. It didn't make him feel any less responsible for what he was about to do but it felt like he was operating from a place beyond reason, where justice and morality are long-forgotten concepts, and there isn't anything a man won't do to see what's behind the curtain of reality. 8. Selina woke to the first of three alarms she had set to make sure she wouldn't be late for zero period. She washed her face, brushed her teeth, and dressed, before heading downstairs for what little breakfast she had time to eat. 
After a handful of grapes and a few bites of a bran muffin, she slung her backpack over one shoulder and jogged out to her car. It was a cold spring morning. A chill breeze ran down the empty street, and Selena noticed, if only fleetingly, that the windows of her car looked somewhat foggy. She eased herself into the car, guiding her keys towards the ignition as she set down her backpack and got herself situated. For a brief second, she detected what seemed to be movement behind her. She jolted, caught a glimpse of a dark shape rising in the rearview mirror, and then the world went black. A pillowcase had been thrown over her head and pulled tight. She felt her body go slack with shock, heard a distant sound that might have been her own scream. Her attacker struggled to drag her into the back seat, where he bound her hands and feet with what felt like zip ties. As soon as the attacker deemed her sufficiently immobilized, he climbed into the driver's seat, slid her keys into the ignition, and started the car. Selena battled to stay lucid. A part of her wanted to just let go, slip into the numb oblivion of shock, and let awareness fade away. But she wouldn't allow that to happen. She fought to stay present, sobbing loudly because it felt like the only thing she could do. After a few minutes, she managed to regain some vestige of composure. What do you want from me? She managed to ask the man that had just kidnapped her. He was silent for a moment. Selina couldn't see him through the pillowcase on her head, but she knew that he was sitting stock still behind the wheel. She couldn't detect even a slight movement coming from him. He just drove, keeping perfectly steady as he piloted the car down whatever road they were on. It didn't feel like they were going that fast, so she knew they were still somewhere near her house in the Tuella Valley. She wondered if she could use her foot to pop the door open. If she leapt out of the car and started hobbling down the highway, surely someone would help her. But she couldn't get the bulgy toe of her boot to pry the latch open on the door. She kicked at the door in frustration, screaming at the top of her lungs. What do you want from me? she wailed. And then, to her surprise, she heard the man speak. It's not what I want, he said. It's what the stone wants. She fell silent at the words, unable to comprehend what he'd meant by them. I have money, she said. Not a lot, but some. You can have it. You can have whatever you want. Just please. Money can't pay this debt, he said. His voice was ragged, but he didn't sound much older than twenty or thirty. Unless you plan on paying with your pound of flesh. What? Debt, Selina cried. I don't know anyone anything. Not you, her kidnapper replied, lighting a cigarette. Your dad. It's all because of some experiment he conducted. So that's what this is about, Selina thought. Something her father had done. She heard her kidnapper crack the window to ash his cigarette. She felt the cold morning air fill the car. It felt like icy pinpricks against her skin. She tried to control her breathing, but she felt like she might start hyperventilating any second. A thought rushed into her head. She was going to die in Tuella. She was going to die in Tuella in the backseat of her shitty Volkswagen Passat. She was going to die having never seen the world, having never even left the state of Utah, 
and it wasn't because of anything she had done. It was only because she was her father's daughter, the one person she had spent her life trying to separate herself from. She had devoted her life to escaping his shadow, and now she was going to die because of him. She was a casualty of a needlessly cold and unforgiving world. And that was all it came down to. She looked back on her life, on all the nights she spent studying, all the time and effort she put into raising money for her trip to France, all the hours she spent working at the bakery. What was it all worth? What had she done any of it for, if life was just going to lead her to this moment? Without warning, the car came to a sudden stop. She could hear gravel under the braking tires. Selena tried to prepare herself for whatever came next. She willed herself to fight or run or do whatever it took to survive this nightmare. The driver's door opened and then the rear door opened soon after. Selena sat up, ready to run. Her kidnapper pulled the pillowcase off her head and she was ambushed by the glare of the morning sun. When the world came into focus, the first thing she saw was the gun pointed directly at her face. Any bold plans she had made to run faded away in the span of a second. A hellish new reality was closing in around her. Suddenly, Selena heard a voice. It was far off but distinct. It sounded almost as though it was speaking just to her. It won't be long now, the voice said. Nine. Gideon cut the zip ties from the girl's ankles, but left her bound at the wrist. Get out of the car, he said to his captive. She looked to him as though she were on the edge of losing consciousness, so terrified she could faint. He hoped that didn't happen, because then he'd have to drag her across the field like a sack of potatoes. She stepped out of the car and began walking in the direction he indicated. I don't know what my dad did he heard the girl say, sniffling through tears. But I promise you I had nothing to do with it. I haven't seen him in years. I don't know anything about him. In fact, I hate him. So that's probably something we have in common, right? Just think about this, please. It's nothing to me, Gideon replied. I don't care about your father. It's just what the stone wants. The girl stopped noticing the towering stone at the end of the field before her. She seemed to tense, to become stubborn, her fear compounded by confusion. What is this? she asked, her voice faltering. What are we doing here? Gideon grabbed her by the arm and tugged her along. You'll see, he said. As he coaxed her towards the stone, he heard it speak again. It was the second time it had spoken since he'd gotten there and both times it had repeated the same message. It won't be long now, said the stone. It was the same thing it had said to him the first time he heard it speak. The girl stopped suddenly. He could tell by the look on her face that she had heard it too. What was that? she asked, her features defined by shock and dread. That was the same voice I just heard. Who said that? Gideon just nodded at the stone and with a flick of his beretta, he urged her to keep walking. When they got to the base of the stone, they stopped and stood before it. Gideon half expected something fantastic to happen, 
The stone would begin glowing and levitating again. The girl's body would begin shaking violently. Her eyes would become fluorescent and she would speak in tongues. But nothing like that happened. They just stood there, and the stone remained silent. Suddenly, Gideon became scared that someone would pass by and see them there. There was no work going on at the farm that day, but that didn't mean they were free and clear. A passerby could still take note of them. All it would take was for the wrong person to become suspicious, and Gideon would be back in the pen. Come on, he said to the stone. I brought her to you, just like you asked. Now what are you waiting for? He waited. The girl stood, trembling, halfway between him and the rock. This is her, Gideon shouted, jerking his gun in the direction of the girl. This is the daughter of the researcher that conjured you or whatever. It was her father that got you stuck in that stone. Now I brought her to you just like you asked. So let's finish this. We can't stand out here like this all day. There was another long silence, and then finally the stone spoke again. Bring her closer to me, it said. The girl looked back at him, the terror on her face absolute. Gideon nodded at the stone and she proceeded walking. She took five or six shaky steps towards the rock before falling to the ground. For a moment, Gideon was certain that she was under the influence of the stone. But then he saw the fingers of her right hand close around a length of barbed wire that was laying in the field. Before he could comprehend what she was doing, she rose and swung the strand of barbed wire around. It whipped through the air, and two of the rusty barbs connected with Gideon's face. One dug into his temple and the other into his jaw, and together they tore free a sizable portion of the flesh on his face. Immediately, he could feel hot blood pouring down his cheek. It trickled down his chest, soaking his white t-shirt with scarlet blotches. The gun sailed out of his hand and landed somewhere in the grass. Blood was pouring into Gideon's left eye now. He could hardly see and the pain was immense. He felt, in a strange way, like he had been wronged. Like his present situation was somehow unfair. He had been a jailbird and a violent criminal. He'd gone straight, gotten a job, done the hard, honest work. Didn't that count for anything? He'd made an effort to become a better person, to integrate into the working class. Wasn't there some worth in that? With that question still unanswered in his mind, Selina fired two shots into his skull. Gideon's world went black and he died having never experienced the vast pleasure and enlightenment that the stone had promised him. 10. After dropping the gun and screaming several lungfuls of air into the empty field, Selina ran back to her car. When she got inside, she fished her phone out of her backpack and called the police. In the days that followed... Selina learned that the man that had kidnapped her was an ex-convict named Gideon Palmer. He had been employed at the farm where he had taken her, and where she had ultimately shot and killed him. There was still an investigation underway, but the police assured Selina and her hysteric mother 
that the girl would not face any criminal charges for what she had done. It was clear to all involved that she had acted purely in self-defense. As the investigators explained, Gideon had apparently gone crazy. He'd become obsessed with the stone that he had dragged her to, had believed even that he could talk to it. At the mention of her kidnapper believing he could talk to the stone, Selena grew pale. Her eyes became distant as she remembered the voice she had heard in the field. Was her attacker really just a violent psychopath? She didn't dare tell anyone about the voice. She couldn't bear the idea of people thinking she was crazy too. And the last thing she wanted to do was lend credence to her attacker's story. Selena tried to get on with her life, but it was clear to her even soon after the attack that things would never really be the same again. Her story caught on in the public eye. She was interviewed by journalists, even appeared on local TV a couple times. She was talked about on true crime podcasts, and a TV show called I Could Have Died reached out to her to ask if she would agree to a dramatic television adaptation of her experiences. She told them she would think about it. Truthfully, she didn't see herself as the bold, cunning survivor type that the media portrayed her as. When she saw headlines like, Brave young girl thwarts would-be killer in courageous act of self-defense, she didn't even know what to think. There was nothing dazzling or heroic about what she had done. She had torn a man's face off. She had watched his head explode as she fired two shots into it. All she really wanted was for her life to return to some level of normalcy. And more than ever, she wanted to get the hell out of Tuella. So, that's exactly what she did. The week she turned 18, Selena decided to enroll in flight school. She moved to Southern California, where she would undergo her training. Six years went by, and Selena had moved on from what happened in Tuella. She'd moved on from her father and from Gideon Palmer and from everything else. She was flying charter jets for rich businessmen, and she was married to an air traffic controller. The two had talked about having kids but were waiting for the right time, as if it would ever come. They lived in a nice condo not far from Oceanside, and on weekends they would go to San Diego to meet friends and walk the beach. On a Tuesday afternoon in mid-spring, Selena was in Carlsbad getting some shopping done before she was due to fly again the following day. She stepped out onto the sidewalk and began walking back to where she'd parked her car a few blocks away. She hadn't even realized that anyone was walking alongside her, but suddenly she heard a voice that registered as immediately familiar. It won't be long now, the voice said. It was the same voice that she had heard in the field on the day that she shot Gideon Palmer. She turned slowly and saw a short, pale man standing next to her. He had straight black hair and dark pits for eyes. His stubby arms dangled idly at his sides, dirty fingernails extending just past the tips of his fingers. Selena knew, somehow, that this man, or whatever he was, was the one responsible for Gideon Palmer's undoing. And it wasn't only because his voice was identical to the one she'd heard that day, the voice that had supposedly belonged to the stone. It was something else, too. 
something she saw in the depths of his pitiless eyes. It's you, she finally managed to whisper. The man said nothing, just went on smiling. How? Selena asked. How did you... Do you ever think about him? The man interrupted. Poor Gideon Palmer. Do you ever think about the last expression his face was making before you blew it to bits? It was quite a thing to see. I know I enjoyed it. I thought. He thought. Selena tried to form words, but nothing coherent would come. What did you think, Selena? The man said. Gideon said my father conjured you. That you were stuck in that stone. The man laughed. I've never been stuck anywhere, he said. It wasn't your father that brought me into this world. He didn't conjure me with any experiment he conducted at Dugway. I just told Gideon that because I knew he'd believe it. I just wanted a little blood to be spilled on the desert floor. Is that so bad? Selena bit her lip to keep it from shaking. There was a question in her head but she didn't know if she wanted to ask it. She didn't trust this thing that stood before her to give her an honest answer. As she held the question in her mind, the man's smile widened. You want to know what your father really did at Dugway, he said. You want to know why he disappeared. Selena wanted to shake her head. She wanted to insist that no, she didn't care that it was no business of hers, and that she was doing just fine without her father, thank you very much. But she said nothing. She just stood there and waited, frozen in place. Then, the man leaned in and began to whisper. He told her that her father had been in a unit that tested the efficacy of directed radiation weapons. It was highly unethical work, which was why her mother had hated it so much. The man told her that it was her father's job to guard the door to the biosafety containment, that he stood guard to make sure none of the staff were exposed to radiation. One day, her father had failed to seal the door, and two lab technicians were exposed to lethal amounts of radiation. They both died within a few days, and her father... Well, he couldn't live with himself after that. So he drove his car to a secluded field, took an overdose of barbiturates, and lay down on the ground to die. I can show you where he did it, the man jeered. We can go pick at his bones. Selena felt a tear break free from her eye and roll down her cheek. Why do you do this? she asked. What are you? The smile returned to the man's face. His cracked lips were a sickly shade of purple. I'm just the thing on the other side of the door, he said. Hey. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoy it, I'd like to remind you that I have a full-length cosmic horror audiobook available on my Patreon. It's called Solace, and it tells the story of a journalist who becomes obsessed with a series of strange disappearances. 
It's over eight hours long, and it's broken up into five parts. It has a private RSS feed, so you can listen to it on the Apple Podcast app or whatever other podcasting app you like. Or, of course, you can listen to it on the Patreon mobile app or desktop or whatever. And you can get it for just three bucks. Even if you just subscribe for a month, listen to it, and then go back to being a free listener, that's totally cool with me. And you get a $3 audiobook out of it, which is a pretty good deal. You can listen to the first 30 minutes of it in the episode titled Solace. There's a link in the show notes, as well as in the bio of my show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. As always, thank you for listening. And please be careful of that gaunt figure that's looming in the corner of your basement. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together. <laughs>